have a plan for your life? Do you know where you want to go? Are you looking to be happier, healthier, and wealthier while having more fun every day? Meet our empowerment architect and goddess gardener, Cynthia Bryan, as she engages in energetic exchanges with success experts, bringing you research, innovations, strategies, and techniques to strengthen your life, business, and personal spaces. Be inspired, motivated, encouraged, and empowered. Lend us your ears right here on Star Style. Be the star you are. The party starts now. Well, hello, Power Partners. I don't know how the party's going to go today because we're in election 2020, and I know that the tensions are high on every side. But thank you for joining us here at Star Style, Be the Star You Are, brought to the airwaves under Be the Star You Are. I am Cynthia Bryan, your host, and we're coming to you live on the Voice America Network. This is the Empowerment Channel. So, We hope that whatever it is that we do today, that you're going to feel a little bit better. We have a great show lined up for you. I'm really excited about our guest today, who is also with the Authors Guild as part of our Operation Disaster Relief, where we are showcasing Wednesdays with writers and entertainers to give authors, actors, artists an opportunity to showcase their uh, works that because of the pandemic, nobody has been able to. But I have Leslie Sussman coming on in segment two. She's written this really amazing, it's like a memoir, actually. It would make a great documentary, Choosing Life, My Father's Journey in Film from Hollywood to Hiroshima. And it is going to be, um, it's a fascinating book because of how the way she knew her father and actually the way he was after um, or during World War II are probably two different things. So Choosing Life shares a personal journey to answer a very simple yet not easily life question. What gives some people the strength to choose life when faced with unspeakable horrors? So that's uh, coming, coming right up. The miracle moment for today is brought to you by Be The Star You Are. Please visit bethestarur.org. Make a donation, get involved, just check us out. This is by William Arthur Ward. Wise are those who learn that the bottom line doesn't always have to be their top priority. And I think that is such an apropos quote for today when we are in the midst of this election chaos. Um, (laughs) How are you all doing out there? I was just telling Josh, our engineer, when he asked how I'm doing, I told him that for the past two days, I have literally been shoveling manure because the stench of politics was so offensive to me that I much prefer to smell the, the stink of nature. And I know that my garden is going to thank me for it. I actually had a dump truck come and deliver 10 yards of manure. (laughs) And so instead of listening to what was going on in the political world, I decided to start shoveling. And um, so I guess it's going to help my arm muscles. My back is killing me, but I know that my garden is going to be great. So that's how I've been dealing with the stress of this. It is what what um, an election season. It's um, in the extraordinary late night address on Wednesday. Uh, President Trump basis baselessly. I mean, he had no way to know. He said he had won the re-election, even though the race is still too close to call. And of course, he's also questioning the election process, indicating that. He wanted an all-vote counting ended and suggested that he's going to challenge it in court. And evidently, that's already happening. Um, So he also said it's fraud on the American Republic, and it's an embarrassment to our country. And um, he, he just felt that they had already won the election and is already threatened to go to the Supreme Court because he wants all voting stopped. And... Uh, (laughs) they don't want him to find any ballots and add them to the list. 
But from everything that I have been reading and listening to, all the ballots that are now being counted are in states that they're already in. However, they weren't allowed to be counted. So I was just going to uh, give you some info from um, the Wall Street Journal as of today. Swing states are obviously very tight and Biden and Trump are locked in a close contest amid this pandemic and the downturn. And speaking of the pandemic, we are now up to 233,000 deaths as uh, 232,000 deaths as of today, with literally another thousand happening every day. Um, 92,000 new cases this week of COVID. That is a lot. And that's without everybody being tested. So no matter who you voted for, just remember that voting is our right. It's our obligation. It's part of the democracy of America. And that's why we live in the United States of America. I did really like what Biden said. And instead of being um, antagonistic, he said that, you know, if he wins the election, he will be a president for all. Doesn't matter if we are red, blue, green, purple. He's a president for all. And that's the way I'm hoping that if Trump should win, that he will feel as well, as opposed to talking only about the red wave. I think it's so important that we unite because we're such a divided country. But the economy, the virus, and the race split in the electorate. So the portrait of America revealed in last night's uh, presidential election was one of such a deeply divided nation, split between men and women, white and non-white voters, urban and rural, college grads and those who didn't graduate from college, and differing views on the importance of controlling the coronavirus pandemic versus preventing further damage to the economy. So there was a national voter survey that was conducted for the Wall Street Journal and other news organizations that showed President Trump with his strongest support among men, white voters without a college degree, rural residents, and those who said the government should prioritize the economy, even if it increases the spread of the coronavirus. And then Democrat Joe Biden was more heavily favored by women, urban and suburban residents non-white voters, and college graduates. Now, the AP is the one, uh, AP VoteCast, they're the ones that actually have been tallying the vote um, for years. And they um, they did a survey which included more than 100,000 registered voters, and they didn't attempt to predict the winner of a race that is yet to be called, but it does sketch out in great detail the complex mosaic of our 2020 American electorate, a group expected to break a turnout record from 2016 when 139 million people voted. And as of right now, it said that 150 million people have cast their votes. So we do need to have patience because we want this to be of the people, by the people, and for the people. So how has America voted uh, so far? This is the AP vote, uh, vote cast findings from this presidential race. A pre-election and election day survey interviewed about 140,000 people who said they voted in the election. And these are just preliminary results. So it's just offering a look at voting patterns and trends as we await the voting results from across the nation. First of all, the most important issue for voters, 42% said coronavirus, 27% said the economy and their jobs. And I just wanted to say something about coronavirus. On October 27th, here in California, where I am, in the county where I am, we just had opened up to a third tier where we could have, you know, supposedly you could go to a restaurant, et cetera. So, you know, it was my husband's birthday. I took him out to dinner for the very first time. We've been to a restaurant um, since uh, this, we were closed down in March. We did sit outside. We did wear masks. We took our masks down when we ate and we drank. But just in one week, less than one week, We have had so many, an explosion in the virus. Fortunately, I'm not among them at the moment. Um, 
but we're closed down again. We're now in an orange. So we're hoping to not get to a red. So this virus has to, in order for the economy to open completely, we have to contain the virus. It's like contain the virus, then open the economy. Anyway, back to the issues for voters. 9% said health care, which I thought was interesting considering how many people need health care. Um, and that seemed like such a low number. Racism was 8%. Climate change was 4 Law enforcement, 4 Immigration, 3 Abortion, 3 And foreign policy, 1%. So people really didn't care about for, foreign policy. Now, how people voted by gender, race, age, education, income, and location. And I found this really fascinating. Um, by gender, men, 49% for, for Biden, um, 48% for Trump. Women, 58% Biden and 40% Trump. And as a woman, and as I've said before, I am uh, an independent. I am no color. I, have, I vote for the people, the policies, the programs that I believe will be best for America. I really cannot understand how any woman could vote for Trump because he's a misogynist and I, I just, I, I just, and a bully and I hate the way that he treats women. Um, second, by race, white women, 46% uh, Biden and 52% Trump and um, black people, 91% Biden, 7% Trump. Hispanic or Latino, 67% Biden, 31% Trump. However, we did see in Florida that the Cubanos voted very, very highly for uh, Trump because probably of his talking about the socialist policies and having been to Cuba, anybody who is Cuban would not like to return to Cuba. Asians, 72% Biden, 26% Trump. Now, by age, this was rather interesting to me. 18 to 29-year-olds, 63% voted Biden, 33% voted Trump. 30 to 34, 57% Biden, 40% Trump. 45 to 64 years old, 51% Biden, 47% Trump. And 65 and older, 51% Biden, 48% Trump. So very close in the 45 um, and 65 older, they just seem to, you know, it's pretty much a, a it's a toss up there. Now, education, if you had a high school education or less, it was 49% for each. But if you have some college, 51% went to Biden, whereas 47% went to Trump. But if you were a college graduate, 59% Biden. 39% Trump. And if you're postgraduate, here was the biggest, uh, the biggest uh, dichotomy. And I would say this probably goes because Trump isn't listening to scientists. And if you're a postgraduate, you might have some kind of science background and you want to be with Biden. 61% Biden and 36% uh, Trump. And then income levels. Um, if you have earn under 50,000, 56% Biden, 41% Trump. If you earn 50 to 100 grand, 51% Biden, 46% Trump. If you go greater than 100,000, it said 54% Biden, 44% Trump. And I thought that was interesting because I would have thought it would be just the opposite, that if you made a lot of money, you would want Trump because most of the bankers and people that are pretty wealthy seem to be going with Trump. And then finally... The location, if you were urban, 68% of Biden and 29% Trump. If you're suburban, 57% Biden, 41% Trump. But if you were rural, uh, you were a 52% for Trump and 46% for Biden. So after a long, intense election season shadowed by the deadly pandemic, the day appeared to lack any major voting glitches. There wasn't any um, cyber meddling or disruptions at polling sites that we really saw other, other than the big um, water break. 
that they had, about 100 million people, a record number, had already voted before Election Day, choosing between a Republican incumbent pushing for a faster reopening from lockdown and the former vice president pledging to listen to the scientists and the experts on the pandemic and provide more conventional conventional leadership. So more than 40% of voters named coronavirus again as the top issue facing the country, while over a quarter said it was the economy according to preliminary results. So as of right now, we really don't know. It's just been a campaign like no other in modern history, concluding amid a worsening pandemic and warnings of possible civil unrest. And the winner will assume leadership, uh, whoever it is, it's got a very fractured nation battered by this coronavirus, which has claimed 232,000 and go almost 233, and a damaged economy and has upended daily life for everyone. So we just have to brace ourselves and, um, and just know that this is a process. We have to have patience and that it's all going to work out somehow. And in the meantime, after the show, although it's going to be dark, I'm just going to go shovel more manure because I'm as stressed as all of you. When we come back from break, we have Leslie Sussman with, Sussman with us. You're going to just love what uh, this book is about. It's called Choosing Life, My Father's Journey in Film from Hollywood to Hiroshima. It, this is a winner of a book. So I'm Cynthia Bryan. You're listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. We will be right back. Don't go away. Be the star you are. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Are you seeking a Dynamo speaker for your meeting, conference, or organization? Internationally recognized keynote speaker and New York Times bestselling author and lifestyle coach, Cynthia Bryan, will bring her energetic expertise, passionate professionalism, and ebullient personality to your event. Hailed as an expert in lifestyle, women's issues, self-help, personal balance, leadership, media, gardening, and interior design topics, Cynthia Bryan is a popular empowerment keynote speaker around the world. Lecturing to audiences of 100 to 5,000. For rates and bookings, call 925-377-STAR. 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 And visit www.cynthiabryan.com. When you want the best, book Cynthia Bryan. www.cynthiabryan.com. This business of show business is calling out to me. Get started acting or modeling with a consultation from media coach extraordinaire Cynthia Bryan, who has guided entertainment careers for over two decades. Call 925-377-STAR or visit www.cynthiabryan.com. Pick up a copy of her award-winning book, The Business of Show Business, and start living your dreams today. Call 925-377-STAR. 925-377-STAR. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. It's power time on Star Style. Be the star you are with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer, Cynthia Bryan. Now, back to the power party. This business of show business is Well, thank you so much for staying with us in this uh Amazing day of elections 2020. We have a really fabulous pioneer on the planet for you as our guest today, and it is Leslie Susson. She's written this incredible book. I think it's more like a memoir. It's called My Father's Journey in Film from Hollywood to Hiroshima. And Choosing Life is a personal journey, and it's answering a simple yet very difficult, I think, life question, and it's how do some people choose life when faced with unspeakable horrors? We'll find out a little bit more about Leslie as we get into the show, but I want to welcome her now. Welcome, Leslie, to Star Style. Be the star you are. Thank you so much, Cynthia. I'm so excited that you invited me to be here with you today. 
Well, you know what? You were here uh, kind of on a historic day, aren't you? <laughs> so it would seem, or a historic so, week, or a month. So, uh, yes, it's probably going to be a historic week. I mean, the 2020 elections, nobody knows what is going on at the moment, and everybody is crossing their fingers. But this is really an important book on an important day, I believe, because it's your book is talking about the atomic bomb and Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the what your dad had to do with it. But before we get into that, I want uh, to tell our listeners just a little bit about you, or I should probably have you tell our listeners a little bit about you. Um, so why don't you just give us a little bit of your background? Because I was fascinated to you know find out that you grew up in the 60s and 70s you kind of consider yourself a bit of a hippie a, a pacifist and here your dad was the cinematographer from Hollywood to Hiroshima um, and part of this whole uh, taking photos of the atomic bomb but it he really wasn't the dad that you thought that he was. You went and found that story. So give us a little bit of your background before we start asking some questions. Yes, um, I, I grew up in Manhattan as my father had done before me. Um, and that was a probably all that I thought we had in common when I was growing up. Um, I was uh, growing up in the 60s and 70s, as you say, it, it's the time of the famous generation gap. And it was a, a really a, a chasm more than a gap, I think. Um, my father had come from a generation, his parents were immigrants. They were extremely grateful to uh, have escaped Russia and Europe. They were Jewish refugees, basically. They, they left before the war. They left um, you know, earlier in the century, but they watched what happened to their family members. So there was a, a depth of love for the country that he was raised with. And, you know, he had uh, fought in the military, as did, you know, most of the young men of his generation. Yeah, it was the and great, he, the great generation, the, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, the greatest generation. Um, also known in my book as the silent generation, because right. what they didn't do after all that was talk about it. Right. Uh, right. And so I didn't really know what my father has experienced. And I didn't know uh, many of his reactions to me seemed inexplicable and aggravating. And um, I think uh, we irritated each other no end. Um I was, as you say, very much a hippie. I mean, mm -hmm. in the early part of uh, my adolescence, I lived in Los Angeles and I rode around on a bicycle with a basket full of flowers to give away flowers. So, <laughs> I, I mean, the literal flower child. You were the before. little flower child. Yeah, you exactly. said that you saw your dad as a hypocrite on the wrong side of the generation gap because you were an activist. You opposed the Vietnam War and he didn't support your interracial marriage either when that happened. That's right. That I was a little bit older by then, but not that much older. I, I went to college when I was 16. And um, so I was very active in college with, uh, I founded a group called the Gray Panthers, uh, an attempt to bridge the gener generation gap uh, with older progressives and young activists um, trying to have a sense of continuity. And I uh, was involved with the peace movement. And my father, I knew what I, the little I knew was that he was against nuclear weapons, that he had been in Hiroshima, but I didn't know anything about what he had seen. And I thought that should mean that he would be a, a supporter of the peace movement. And he thought that uh, we were, questioning the government too much and questioning everything and uh, nuclear weapons were wrong but we shouldn't uh, be against our own government and I just couldn't understand that when I knew that he was upset about some films of his being uh, 
hidden by the government. He never quite explained it, but I, I just thought it didn't make sense. He was for the government. He was mad at the government. He was against nuclear weapons, but he wasn't for peace. And we just um, didn't communicate. You didn't communicate. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's interesting, too, um, that you're saying that about the silent generation, because I have uncles and my, and my father and all that that were part of World War II. And nobody did talk about it. And, you know, I think that the, the sadness is that nobody really knew what anybody went through. And so um, that generation really believed in the government 100%. You fight for your country. And so when Vietnam came around, it was like, hey, if, you know, if you got to go, you have to go, right? Until you actually lose a child and then you realize that it was so wrong. But listen, for the last 30 years, you've been working for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You're currently an administrative appeals judge. And I want to um, to get to this whole part of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and your book, Choosing Life. But first of all, I wanted to ask you something that's been going around a lot is what is the Hatch Act? Because... <laughs> That has come up so often in uh, in conversation these days because there's been many of the um, Trump family, I guess, oh, they violated the Hatch Act or whatever. Could you explain as a judge, what does what is the Hatch Act and, and how do you violate it? Well, I can't give you any official opinions about the Hatch Act. I um, I obviously that's not my specialty. I can't tell you in a general way. Yeah, that's generally is a, what it is. It's a federal law that restricts the political activities of um, certain federal employees, not all of them. Um, for most federal employees, it uh, does not allow them, for example, to run in partisan campaigns or to um, to be active in a partisan campaign, but they it doesn't restrict all their activities. I'm what's called further restricted, which is certain uh, employees, including administrative judges, are even more restricted so that I do not uh, have any public discussion about any partisan um, political matters. So... Wouldn't it be great if we all felt that way? <laughs> I'd rather be nonpartisan. So, well, all right. Apart from federal law, I'm. I feel like I want the parties who come before me to not wonder if uh, politics played any role in my decision making. So, I just keep that private. Right. That's so important. Well, let's get back to your dad because I think what the and your book, Choosing Life. What was so fascinating is, so you grew up, you felt like the only thing you had in common was the fact that you lived in Manhattan until your dad got cancer and died. And his last wish was that his ashes be scattered in um, Hiroshima. And so it took you many years to uh, just, you know, to figure out how to write this book. But in 1987, you honored his wishes and you took your young four-year-old daughter and you followed his footsteps in Japan and you found out about what he had filmed 40 years before you met many of the, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Is it Hibakusha? Hibakusha. Hibakusha. Oh, wow. I really butchered that. Great. Hibakusha. Um, and he actually considered himself as one of those two because he really wanted to have this message of peace. So tell us what you discovered on why the government covered up his photos for so long. Because he was a Hollywood, he was a Hollywood cinematographer and television producer before he was uh, drafted to or asked to shoot these pictures of Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the bomb had been dropped. So, um, yeah, he, he had uh, been studying cinematography in Hollywood and was actually his first uh, post. He was stationed at the motion picture unit for the Army, which was in Culver City, California, with uh, commanding officer uh, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. So, <laughs> right. yeah, so he, he was definitely a Hollywood person. Um, 
And when he came back, he was one of the first directors in in television. Um, But what I really didn't know much about was what had happened to him during that time he was in Japan. And he really opened up about it only at the end of his life. He thought the cancer that he developed was the result of the the low-level radiation that he was exposed to in the months he was in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. He was there with a U.S. Army film crew filming the effects of the atomic bombing, and he was drawn to particularly film the human effects and to make a record of the people he saw in the hospital who were very different from what he saw in other bomb cities. They were sickening and getting worse and still dying um, already. He was, by the time he was there, it was January of 1946. So it was already some months later that he was filming. And he took this film at the behest of the, the army and the strategic bombing survey. But at the end of the filming, he was ordered to bring it back to Washington and was told that it was going to be classified as top secret. He was seeking to use the footage to make a movie to show the American people what nuclear weapons really meant. Uh, and that, that was something the army decided was against national interests and that the American people wouldn't have any reason to want to see that sort of thing. And so the films, for the rest of my father's life, he fought to try to get access to them and they were classified top secret. And finally, they were declassified by operation of law and they're now in the National Archives. Um, But they were hidden for quite, for decades. And when I went to Japan um, after his to try to carry out his request. One of the earliest things that happened to me was that I visited Peace Park in Hiroshima and I listened to a woman who had survived the bomb. And that's what the word hibakusha means. It Mm -hmm. means bomb affected person or bomb survivor. And she told the story of her exposure and she also told the story of being filmed by my father and held up his picture. And in Japan... I have chills just when you said that. I mean, when I read that, I mean, how serendipitous that was, right? It was like you were meant to be there and to, um, to meet her. It was, it was an amazing experience and she was an amazing woman. We, we really spent a lot of time with her. And you became friends. Yes. Yeah. Um, so part of the reason she was doing Kataribe is in the time before my father's death, while he was ill, he had met a group from Japan that was displaying pictures at the United Nations of, uh, people affected by the bomb of, of people in the hospitals. And he recognized some of the individuals in the pictures and talking to the exhibitor, they discovered that there was all this secret footage and they went back and had a nationwide grassroots movement in Japan to get the footage released and to buy a print of it. It was called the 10 feet campaign because each person was asked to contribute enough to buy 10 feet. And they then tracked down people in my father's footage and made a documentary in Japanese uh, from those people's uh, film from 1946 and them discussing it uh, at the time, which would have been around 1985, that they were making the documentary. And that's how Numata-san learned about uh, the footage, and it changed her life. She had hidden the fact that she was Hibakusha, as many did. It was something that was people were embarrassed or ashamed of. Well, didn't uh, they also think that, I mean, they didn't really know how people were affected, so they thought it could even be contagious. So, yes, pe- you know, many well, people they, didn't they, allow they, to get married because if, they were, if they were Hibakusha, you know, it, it was just a, such a sad experience. It, it was a stigma, basically. People were afraid of them. They were afraid to hire them. They were afraid to marry them. They thought it might be a blood taint. So many survivors tried, who were not, you know, burned in an obvious way, tried to hide that fact. 
And when the documentary came out, she decided that she had a duty to uh, to turn that around and start telling everyone what had happened and convince them, um, you know, to to make peace and to not have nuclear weapons in the future. And so to that end, she began giving um, these talks in Peace Park, and that's how I encountered her. And listening to her talk about the experience and meeting other people that he filmed um the the effect was that i started realizing that my father had seen all of these things and been impacted by them so i began to learn about my father and that was the beginning of a long process well you know but it's such a an amazing journey for you because you not only learned about your father but you started to really appreciate him and realize that your viewpoints actually weren't that different. It was just a different time. Now, you are um, very much in favor of abolishing um, Picadon, right? You don't want a peak. Is it called Picadon? You don't want that to happen Picadon, again. Yes. Picadon, yes. Picadon. Picadon. So last week, um, the 50th and final country to make the United Nations Treaty on Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons um, was finally ratified. I guess it's yes. going to So tell us about that. It could go into force in 90 days. And Honduras was the country that took that treaty over the top. Is this going to have some positive effects for the world? Because I don't know if the United States isn't really part of it, right? No, none of the major. None of the major. None of the, none of the ones. Not Russia. Not China. Not nobody that. Okay, tell That's us about correct. that. Well, you know, so some people do have that reaction that well, you know, it's it's not going to immediately abolish nuclear weapons because none of the countries with significant numbers of nuclear weapons or that are known to have them has signed on to it, but I think it does make a huge difference when. The, the United Nations speaking on behalf of the world's people has made, has ratified an agreement by uh, all of these nations calling for these weapons to be removed from our world. Because it's not just the countries that have nuclear weapons that have a right to speak to them. It's the countries that will suffer from their use. So I think it's a big milestone. Is, I think it's a huge milestone because if when people look uh, and read your book, if you're just joining us, we're talking with author Leslie Susson, and her book is called Choosing Life, My Father's Journey in Film from Hollywood to Hiroshima. Um, the, the photos that you have in the book are wonderful. And so many of these photos, they're from... Um, they're from the, the book that your dad put together, right? Yes, it's called Japan in Defeat, but it's really a, almost a photo album, I a would call it. A photo album, okay. He, he was, he was um, supposed to write a report before they would let him leave the army, a report about what the crew had done in, in filming. And he felt like he couldn't put words to it very much. There are some pages with some discussion, but he's he's a vi he was a visual person. Um, that's another difference we really did have. I'm a word person. We are a word person. He was a he, visual yeah. person, and um, so he ended up doing his report in the form of this uh, photographic um, photo essay. I guess is what they would call them now. Well, uh, a photo report. That they give photo credit says U.S. Army, <laughs> right? Yes, <laughs> because he did it while he was still within the army. So the works done while uh, while under the army um, are public domain. So that's why I point out that that's a army document. But he was allowed to keep a, a set. It's a three volume. Um, uh, which you set, have quite quite have. large, which I which have, have, which now, he was allowed right? to keep. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, but yeah. these photos they weren't released uh, until later because these were all from 1946. But yeah, but were these all part of the photos that were also not allowed to be seen by the public, or was it just the film? 
So actually, I would love to know the exact answer to that. I don't know if don't these know were either. actually classified, but my father thought they were not allowed to be seen and he hid them when I was growing up. So I, I have seen the orders classifying the footage as top secret. Um, I have not seen orders directly speaking to whether the, you know, the photo report had to be classified. But I know my father hid it for many years when I was a child. So he he never shared it with you. And what about with your with your mother too? I mean, did you ever talk to your mother about why your father was so distant from you? No, I I really didn't. Um, you know, we were not trusting people over thirty, which is kind of scary right. now that I'm sixty eight. What was that? What was there was a movie? I don't remember what that movie was, but it there was a movie that I remember seeing when I was quite young that was about not trusting people over thirty. In fact, people over thirty shouldn't even be alive. Alive. What do you remember? What that movie was? I just I remember, remember that was the, the movie, prompt. and I. I can't say I ever really felt that way. I mean, if I had, I wouldn't have helped found the Grey Panthers. Right. But I did a lot better with, I was much closer to my grandparents. I did a lot better with the generation before. But there was enormous conflict with my parents, between my parents and between me and my brother with my parents. Right. Um, and that was not, I think, I mean, I think it was worse than average, but I think that generational split was not unique to our family. No, I think this was a sign of the times. I think that people in those days or, or teens in those years in the 60s and 70s didn't, you know, they felt very misunderstood. I mean, there was so much civil unrest uh, in those times. There was the Vietnam War. There was the whole sexual uh, revolution. Everything was going on. But obviously with the founding the Great Panthers, you were attempting to bridge a gap. So um, one thing I noticed too in your book is that your parents were Jewish but you found out that you weren't Jewish. And so, so that was my sort of father, a shocker. Your father, yeah. yeah, go ahead. My father was Jewish. My mother was not Jewish. Um, but my mother was pretty much estranged from her families. So all the relatives I knew were Jewish. They were all on my father's side. And um, I had very much identified as Jewish. For one thing, if you grow up in New York City, no matter what ethnicity you are, you're a part Jewish. Right, of course. And you have all that those great delis. Too. Exactly. Um, but, you know, beyond that, I had family that was impacted in the Holocaust. I had a, my grandmother's sister died in a Stalinist camp as a Jew. And so... Um, it was it was important to me, an important part of my identity. So when I went to join the synagogue across the street from um, our home in Los Angeles, it was a, a big shock when I discovered from the rabbi there that I was not Jewish, that I would have to convert to be Jewish. And that, that synagogue is actually where the title from the book came from. Choosing um, life. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Give us, why did you choose? Uh, why is the title Choosing Life? Well, so the, I actually had a different working title, Nuclear Legacy. And um, my editor suggested that I should focus instead on, on this choosing life title. It came from uh, a verse in Deuteronomy in the Bible. And I read, it's, it's Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 to 20. I was reading the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, in the synagogue after school every day as a way to not go home and listen to the fighting and the, mm -hmm. the trouble. And I became more and more um, invested in, in it. And this particular verse really spoke to me in which God says, I have set before thee life and death the blessing and the curse. Therefore, choose life. Mm -hmm. it it's hit beautiful, me isn't it? It, it really, it, I mean, choose life. I mean, that's, it's like the positive, you choose the positive. There's so much negativity in the world. Let's choose the positive. Choose life. And so that, that became my motto for life. And, and after talking to my editor, I wanted it to be the title of the book 
because even though I'm telling a lot of old stories, a lot of legacy, a lot of past, what I'm telling it for is to convince people to make the life-affirming choice going forward. Mm-hmm. So and and we have a choice. I think that's what's so exactly. important. We, uh, we are speaking with Leslie Susson. She's the author of Choosing Life, My Father's Journey in Film from Hollywood to Hiroshima. Uh, you have you also lived in Hiroshima for a year with your daughter, and you've had yeah. many of the people from Japan visit you. Give us, a, a, give us some of the influence that this connection has had on your life. Well, it, it's... The connection between myself myself and my family to Hiroshima ranges from, I would say, perhaps the sublime to the ridiculous. Um, (laughs) You know, on the light side, my daughter still loves Hello Kitty that she fell in love with in Hiroshima. And does she still Uh, speak Japanese? Because she's still, we both still speak a few words. uh, You know, I'm not, she was really quite fluent in kindergarten, at least with the vocabulary of that age. It sounds like she didn't want to go home either. I mean, she she was quite the star there. I mean, everybody still wants to go back. Yeah. Well, hopefully she will, right? Yes, we we had tickets to be there for the 75th anniversary Mm -hmm. memorial service this year. Unfortunately, with the pandemic. Yeah, obviously we had to cancel it, but we're still hoping maybe next August, Mm -hmm. like next year in Jerusalem for us, it's next year in Hiroshima. Hiroshima. But, you know, it also... um, there, there's something mysterious that my father felt from the first moment, he, you know, first time he was in Hiroshima, that it, it had a feeling of being like home. I mean, you certainly wouldn't normally compare, you know, New York City and Hiroshima. And New York City is more like Tokyo in terms of size and bustle and all of that. But there's something about its layout, which is more like an island, and it's it's sort of business-like, it's got a personality that's different than much of Japan, and it just feels like home to both of us, and it it, it always has, and it does for my daughter, too. So I, I really feel related, and, and I also feel that I'm second-generation Hibakusha, mm-hmm. that, uh, that the bomb has affected my life and my family and tied us forever to this city. Exactly. Exactly. It's like your your sister cities now. You know something right. like that. I mean, seriously, yeah. and it and you know, and what a a beautiful legacy this has been because you have seen firsthand through the eyes of your cinematographer father uh, the total devastation of atomic warfare and as you state in your book in choosing life you have so many of his notes and things in there that it was this bombing was not like anything he had ever ever seen anywhere Uh, you know um this it was just so horrific and so now you can do your work in helping stop with hopefully um the, any atomic bombs that would, or any nuclear weapons for the future. Because when you, when I look at these pictures, it's so obvious. If we use these weapons, the human race is doomed. We are doomed, and that well, is the I message. Think that's right. Um, that is yeah, the message. That, those that were comes, very small. Those and these were, were you know, right. very small compared to what we have now. And now we have thousands rather than two that, that are, are poised. The yeah. Bulletin of Atomic Scientists this year moved the doomsday clock to 100 seconds before midnight. That's the closest it's ever been. So, you know, I, I, I hope that I can make a difference. I hope the book makes a difference. But I also put a lot of my hope in the generation coming after me. Mm-hmm. My daughter and my nephews are all are passionate. I see so many passionate young people. It's kind of uh, uh, like watching a rebirth of the activism that I was 
part of when I was that age. And yeah. that's that's the one thing that really lifts my spirits. Yes, mine too. I, I work with teens, as you know, and yes. um, and young people. And I just see them caring so much. They really do care and they want a better world. And nuclear weapons are not part of that. Well, Leslie, I enjoyed choosing life so much. It opened my eyes uh, to the horrors much more than I even realized before. I want people to go to your website, Hiroshima-choosinglife.com. That's Hiroshima-choosinglife.com. which is just a dash, choosinglife.com. Uh, you can also find her book, you know, wherever books are sold. You can find out more at goodreads.com. And you just look up her name, Leslie Susson, S-U-S-S-A-N. Leslie, it, it was just really fantastic to, um, to get to know your father and to know that you are now connected, you know. Yeah. And that's, that makes me joyful because it means that you chose life. Because he did choose life. He just didn't know how to express it during his life. I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. And that's what I now think we have in common. And that's the real legacy I want to pass on. Mm -hmm. And how fortunate for your daughter to know that and to know how dedicated you are. So thank you again for joining us on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Again, her website, Hiroshima-choosinglife.com. Thank you all for being great listeners, allowing me into your life every Wednesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific, coming to you live on the Voice America Network. This is Star Style, Be the Star You Are, and we are doing Wednesdays with writers and entertainers, attempting to give authors and artists and creatives an opportunity to share their works because they have all been canceled. My aim is always to encourage, inspire, inform, amuse, motivate, and we want you to read a book this week. It's like a garden in your pocket. So pick up a copy of Choosing Life by Leslie Susson. And I just want to thank you and keep the faith for this election 2020. Que sera sera is what my Italian family would say. <laughs> but let's hope. Let's, let's just hope for decency, democracy, and that we uphold the American spirit. Until next week when we celebrate together again, remember, love always wins, kindness always prevails, and smiles will keep us happy. My name is Cynthia Bryan. You've been listening to Star Style. I thank you and encourage you to be your absolutely authentic self. Go out in the world and be the star you are. Thanks for joining me. Make a difference this week. And I'm going to go shovel more manure to get rid of the stench of politics. Thank you. Until next Wednesday. Bye, Thank bye. you, Leslie. Thank, Thank you. you so much. You're so welcome. Thanks again to all of you. Ciao for now. Be the star you are. The star you are. Be the star you are. You are the it's been a pleasure bringing you our life-changing program, Star Style, Be the Star You Are. We have you on our radar as it's our goal to inspire, inform, entertain, and motivate you to be the star you were born to be. For more information, visit StarStyleRadio.com. And to make a donation to the charity, go to BeTheStarYouAre.org. Ignite the flame that burns brightly within. Take charge of your life and coach yourself to success with our dynamic host and empowerment architect, Cynthia Bryan, every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another serving of champagne for the spirit and a power boost to live with star style. Until we celebrate together next week, be the star you are.